Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. I wonder if you've ever been in this situation. Uh, you, you, get to, you get to know someone, you introduce yourself, hello, hello, thank you. Uh, and then eventually you might ask, so what do you do for work? And then so they'll tell you. And then comes the inevitable question, what do you do? I wonder how you respond to that. Perhaps you have a fairly straightforward response. Maybe I'm a teacher, I'm a student, I'm retired. Maybe I'm in between jobs, something like that. But I know some of you have fairly complicated jobs that should maybe be a little bit hard to explain. I wonder what you say. I must say these days, when someone asks me, what do you do? I do actually find it a bit tricky to know what to say. Because, I mean, I could say I'm, I'm a reverend, which I am, or I'm an assistant curate, which I am also, but unless you already kind of know what that is, it, it doesn't really explain much about what I actually do, does it? And I do find that once I, I do actually share what I do, and normally I just say I'm a church minister, I feel like that's straightforward enough, the reaction that I get is, is either normally that Someone will feel free to start expressing and sharing their experiences with the church growing up, whether that's good or whether that's bad. And actually, it is a wonderful privilege to be able to uh, listen to those stories. But often, I just get a stunned sort of silence, like, okay, how was that weather yesterday? And then we move on to something a, a bit easier to talk about. Uh, There is a minister in England, his name is J. John, and he once was sharing this uh, story about how he described what he did. There was a particular lady at an airport sat down next to him, uh, and so she's like, and eventually it's like, oh, so what do you do? And rather than say, well, I'm a reverend, he thought he'd be a little bit creative in his response. Uh, And so I, I, I quote his discussion with her. I work for a global enterprise the lady said, do you? And he said, yes, I do. We've got outlets in nearly every country of the world. She said, have you? And I said, yes, we have. I said, we've got hospitals and hospices and homeless shelters. I said, we do marriage work. We've got orphanages. We've got feeding programs, educational programs. I said, we do all sorts of justice and reconciliation things. Basically, we look after people from birth to death, and we deal in the area of behavioral alteration. And she said, wow, what's it called? And I said, it's called the church. Have you heard of it? I think next time someone asks what I do, if I'm feeling brave, I might give this a shot. (laughs) If you are part of the church, it certainly casts what being a Christian is in fairly uh, exciting language, don't you think? You see, it's not just leaders in the church who might wrestle with what to say, to, to, with what words to use. I mean, all of us here, whether you're someone who loudly and proudly says, yes, I am a Christian, you know, tick that box on the census, whatever it might be, or whether you've never set foot in a church until today, or even maybe you haven't, maybe you're watching us online, and even, and even if you're really not sure what to believe about all of this God, church, Jesus stuff, I mean, we, we often, all of us, we approach Christianity with a set of ideas and assumptions about what it actually looks like 
to be a Christian? You know, what's it going to look like? What's it going to, what's it going to feel like? And some of those expectations are going to be useful and some of them perhaps not so useful. And as I've, I've heard lots of people's stories, often when these expectations that people have, they're, they're not met for whatever reason that might be. Uh, they can be left feeling confused, disappointed, discouraged. I wonder what your expectations are of what the Christian life looks like. As Megan mentioned in our notices, as a church, we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and as we've covered in previous weeks, Corinth is a, it's a city right in the heart of the Greco-Roman Empire. It's a thriving place where there was, it's all, there's all these uh, shows of wisdom and spectacle, pursuit of pleasure. And like us, these Corinthians in this city... They were living with a set of expectations about what it meant to be a Christian. The trouble was that these Corinthians, their expectations were not helpful at all. They had these distorted ideas about what it actually meant to be a Christian. And it was leading to a whole bunch of problems in the church. There was factions and divisions saying, oh no, this person's better than this person's person, you know, and I'm a, I'm a such and such leader follower and I'm this person. And there was all these things. And then there was a lack of love between the members. Later on, as we work our way through the book, like some of them are, you know, missing out on food. Other people are getting drunk. Like it's just, it's kind of chaotic. All sorts of wild behavior. And by the time that Paul writes this letter to them, the church is a mess. And Paul needs to guide this ship back on course. Uh, And so today, in this fourth chapter of the letter, uh, Paul concludes his first big section, thinking about leaders in the church and division and unity, and about what the gospel and the cross actually looks like. Paul reminds them, and he reminds us, of what being a Christian actually means, what it actually looks like. In our passage today, basically, Paul is saying, Corinthians, think of yourselves in the right way. Think of your leaders in the right way. You know, get your expectations about the Christian life right. And to do this, uh, Paul uses three powerful images or ideas of what living as a Christian actually looks like, what, it, what it's really like, and he contrasts them with the, the assumptions that these Corinthians were, were working with. In this chapter, Paul, initially he implies these to himself and the other leaders, but by the end of the chapter, we get in verse 16, he's saying, I want you to imitate me. This is the whole church, okay? So, so this is not just something for the leaders, it's for the whole church. And if you've never really looked into Christianity for yourself, uh, it's, it's so important to get our expectations right. So we all bring different ideas and assumptions uh, to the table about what it might be like or what it should be like. And so I invite you to hear and listen to these words in the Bible itself. And I do also want to say that Um, In fact, most of the New Testament is all about what it means to live as a Christian. It's not just this chapter, okay? So there's a lot more that the Bible has to say than just this. But I believe this is a great start. 
Okay, so what are these three images that Paul uses? Well, the first one is that Christians are servants. Christians and their leaders are servants. At chapter 4, it begins with, This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. The Corinthians, they were operating with this false assumption that being a Christian is, is all about being influential leaders in the world, be, be, yeah, gaining wealth and comfort for themselves, and generally just showing off about how good they are. I mean, maybe you've met Christians like that. By contrast, Paul says that Christians are to think of themselves as nothing more than a servant. If you were here last week, uh, you might remember that Paul uses his servant language in the last chapter as well. And so it's not a completely new idea to call Christians servants. But what's interesting here is he, uh, he actually uses a different Greek word which has even a more like lowly, humble focus than the previous chapter. I don't know if you've ever watched the, the show Downton Abbey. My wife and I are fans. Uh, and, and it tells a story, if you're not aware of what it is, it's a set in the early 1900s. tells a story of the Crawley family in a massive mansion called Downton Abbey. And it tells the story of, of the family, which in all their pomp and things upstairs, having all their nice dinner parties and conversations about, you know, oh, the flowers are you know, not arranged properly and whatnot, uh, all those important things. And then downstairs, you've got the servants. Now, some of these servants are actually fairly noble. They're actually a bit more higher up in the ranks, and so they tend to serve the family directly. They might do the, the lady's hair and other things, uh, and there's a bit of perhaps a bit of um, honour attached to that. But then there's another class of servants, like the scullery maids and the hall boys, whose job is so lowly that they're not even to be seen by the family. They're not the ones who come out and greet them as the, as, the, uh, as the important people arrive. They're the lowly servants. You could almost say that they're the servants of the servants. They serve the food. They, they scrub the, the ash off the floor. And if you have seen the show, uh, the character Daisy begins in this sort of role. And in our passage today, Paul is saying that all Christian leaders, and in fact any Christian should think of themselves as humble servants. The thing about servants is servants, they're not their own boss. They're not self-made. They are accountable and they answer to a master. And as the name Christian would imply, Christians, our master is Christ, Jesus. And as Paul continues to describe this servant of Christ, this, this attitude, this idea that we should embrace, uh, we learn two things about it. Uh, the first is that servants are to put their own interests and agenda aside and act in the interests of their master. That's what servants do. And Paul says in these verses that these servants must be faithful in their role since they are entrusted to do their master's work. When things go well, Jesus is the one that our praise and gratitude should go towards, you know, not to us. Now, unfortunately, all too often we, we hear stories about celebrity Christian leaders uh, bragging about how successful they are or how much better they are than someone else. 
Uh, and, and, and often they could feel justified in bullying and intimidating other people, stepping on them in order to get what they want. We also hear about church leaders and other people who use their public platform as an opportunity to, to promote their own agenda, their own interests. And I hope that you can see from this passage that there is no room in the Christian life for this kind of living. It's not okay. It's not Christ-like. And we should call that out when we see it. Christians, even leaders, no matter how big your church might be, are nothing more than servants of Christ. The second thing that we learn about servants here is that servants of Christ, well, ultimately, they are accountable to their master alone. See, whatever, whatever a fellow servant might think of another servant's service, that's a lot of servants, uh, whatever they might think of that, in, in one sense, it's not really that important. And even what, like, say, I as a servant might think about how well I'm going, what matters is what my master thinks of me. He's the one that I'm accountable to. He's the one that I'm answering to on that final day. Ben, how did you do? Were you faithful with what I asked you to do? Or were you swayed and did you act in the interests of everybody else? Jesus is the one who will hold us accountable to the motives of our heart and the way that we treat others. And for some like me, this sort of thing, this, this is a comfort to me because I'm someone who is naturally really swayed uh, by the opinions of others. And so for me, and maybe, maybe some of you here, it's a case of remembering, actually, I am faithful to my master. He is the one whose approval I really seek and I want to serve. Some people might not like that, and that's okay because... Because I'm, I'm accountable to him, and if he's pleased with me, if, my, if I'm faithful, if my motives are pure, then that is what matters. For others, though, I suspect this might be a sobering challenge. Because it means that Jesus will hold us accountable for the way that we've acted in his name. Whether you're a leader, whether you're a Christian in the workplace or whatever, what opinion are other people forming of you? How have you acted on behalf of Jesus? Jesus will hold you accountable for the way that you've treated others, particularly if it's in his name. And that's quite challenging. Well, Christians are servants, and so let's make sure that our expectations are in the right place. But Paul doesn't end there. The second big image that Paul uses might surprise you. He says that Christians are morons. I know it sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? It's full-on language, but that's exactly what he says. I'm getting a couple of cringes from the front here. I think, that, I think that's the point, though, right? I, he says in verse 10, we are fools for Christ. Now, the, the Greek word fools is moros, which is where we get the word moron from, okay? We are morons for Christ. Christians are morons. Stop saying it. Hey, I'm just quoting the Bible, and I, you know, I don't want to gloss over this. Okay, okay. All right, I'm going to move on. Actually, 
Before I do though, can you can you imagine if if like we introduced ourselves as our leadership team here? Like for example, like this is what we've got on our website at the moment, but you know, rebrand. Okay, you know, introducing our senior moron. I am the assistant moron. We've got our youth and our children's morons. Welcome to church. Okay, I'm done now. Um, but the, the, okay, so the, the thing is though, throughout this section of the chapter, Paul's point is to use very strong language to reverse and to counter the assumption that these Christians in Corinth have. You see, see, they're operating with this idea that being a Christian is about fame and wisdom and strength and honor. Like, that's the stuff that their culture values, and I think our culture values a lot of this too. And Paul's saying, no, you've missed the point about what it means to be a Christian. It's the complete opposite of these values. And he rattles off a whole bunch of things. And listen to this. God's put us on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. That's describing like a gladiator fight in the old Roman times. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe. Not a good spectacle, almost like an embarrassment. We are fools, morons, for Christ. We are weak, we are dishonored. We go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless, we work the dirty work with our own hands, we get ourselves dirty, we are cursed, we are persecuted, slandered, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. What a picture of the Christian life. And as I reflected on the strength of of these words. The reason why Paul is comfortable using such big words and imagery to describe his own experience and that of any Christian is because he knows that the Jesus that he serves and that each of us serve if you're a Christian, this Jesus went through these same things himself. If you read in the Gospels, the story of his life, It becomes clear that he too was treated like a moron. He was condemned to die. He became a spectacle. He became the scum of the earth. For what? For us. For us. When we become a Christian, we are saying that we follow a saviour that the world rejected, that the world finds ridiculous. And so when we claim to be one of his people, we shouldn't be surprised to be ill-treated for his name, for his sake. In fact, one thing I appreciate about Jesus' teaching is he is always very clear about the reality that following him is difficult and it will invite a life of suffering. He says to his disciples, his followers, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then they will persecute you also. They will treat you in this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. The Corinthians, they needed to get their expectations right. Whatever whatever we might think that the good Christian life is, We need to make sure that it's big enough to include the life of Jesus as well. 
and Paul and many Christians around the world. Life is not peachy. In fact, it's an invitation to join Jesus in his suffering. So being a Christian, it's not about wisdom or fame or strength or honour. It's about willing to be a moron for the sake of Christ. It's about willing to, being willing to suffer for him, should it come to that. And I know for us in, in, um, in nice Australia, it perhaps feels a bit more theoretical sometimes, but for many around the world who say I'm a Christian, suffering for his name is a daily reality. It's not a hypothetical here. Well, finally, maybe this is a bit more of an encouraging metaphor Paul says Christians are family. The Christians at the time, they, were, they, they loved following the, uh, the travelling preachers around and they would sort of really devote themselves to that. But by contrast, Paul, who founded this church, he really sees himself as their spiritual father. And so he, he, he deeply loves them, he cares for them, and he really, really wants them to improve in their spiritual health. And so he says, I'm, I'm writing this. That's, the, this is all about that full-on language that we just talked about. I'm writing all this stuff, not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. So even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have become your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Like a father to son, I'm saying, I want you to, I want you to grow up and be like me. Christians are family. Paul addresses this church as his children. In other letters in the New Testament, he describes himself using a mother and child relationship as well. Those who become Christians and who join into a church become part of the one spiritual family in Jesus. And it is truly wonderful on days like this when we can welcome Nick and Tamara's kids into this deep creek family of Christ. It's great also that the, the girl's grandfather, Drew, uh, is, is joining us today. Uh, for many of you who have been part of Deep Creek for many years, I suspect Drew probably feels like your father through the gospel too. So it's wonderful to have you with us, Drew. In Christ, we are all members of the one family. And sure, families can get messy. I'm sure your family is messy. My family can be messy too. And, but since we are family, that we're committed to one another. You know, what's that expression? Blood is thicker than water. Uh, we, we have an obligation to look out for one another, to imitate one another, to pursue reconciliation and forgiveness where we've hurt one another, and ultimately to heal those hurts. We are one family. So that's 1 Corinthians 4. I wonder how you're feeling. By and large, I, I, it feels to me like a pretty sobering description of the Christian life. I mean, w welcome to our family of, of, of servants and morons uh, with, with a sigh helping of suffering. Like, you know, and, and it's, it's interesting, as I've been thinking through this, I'm aware that there's a lot of you joining us today who uh, 
don't often come to church, or at least uh, not regularly. And I'm thinking, wow, what a, what a passage <laughs> to say, welcome to church. <laughs> uh, and so, and, and, and like, it's, it's been like, I've been really wrestling with this because, because I'm just thinking, is it even worth it? Like, being a Christian sounds rough. Is it, is it even worth thinking about this? Is it worth continuing as one? Like, I don't know if, if you're having these sorts of questions too. I mean, even, even Paul, like he kind of, in other parts of the Bible, he boasts about how successful he was, and this is the path he chose to go down. Or actually, more a case that Jesus chose him, but he, he continues to, to faithfully do that. I wonder if you've heard the story of Pheidippides before. It's an ancient story, uh, and as, as the story goes, um, Pheidippides, he was a Greek herald uh, who lived in Athens back 500 years before this uh, church in Corinth existed. And he was a herald, and, and, and in those days, a herald was often a military person whose job it was to run from one place to another uh, to deliver really important news. I mean, they obviously didn't have WhatsApp and emails back then, uh, and so this, they had the next best thing, which was runners. And so on this particular occasion, uh, up in the other uh, city just north of Athens called a Marathon, there was a battle looming. Uh, and so they, the, the Athenians, they were outnumbered, and so Phaedipides, he was given the task to run down to Sparta and try and get some reinforcements to help with the fight. And so down he runs, 240 kilometres down, in two days, mind you, down to Sparta to then ask for help. Like, we need your help only to find that the Spartans, they were busy in a religious holiday at the time and they wouldn't be able to come up, or at least not for a week or so. And so they dip a day go, okay, I'm not great news, but I better back, tell HQ. And so up he runs again, going, you know, and, and, he, and both ways he's going through, you know, Corinth, the city. Hi, Corinthians, as he's going past. Uh, maybe he got a drink of water there or something. Anyway, and he gets back to Athens to say, I've got bad news. Okay, I better go tell the, uh, the actual battlefront. And so then he runs another 40 kilometers to Marathon, um, only to find out that the Athenians have just won the battle without any help. And he's like, awesome, that's cool. And so because it's his job to now deliver the, the herald news, he now then gets that, and then he runs 40 kilometers back to Athens to deliver the message, we have won, and then he collapses and dies of exhaustion, having run 600 kilometers It's, a, it's an extraordinary story. And the Corinthians, as they are one of the cities in amongst this path, they would have certainly had that in their collective history, in their collective memory. They'd tell stories about this guy. And even for us today, we, we honour this man's sacrifice by calling our long races marathons. Ironically, it was only the shortest leg that we, uh, we call the marathon. Although there is actually another race called a, uh, called a Sparta, Spartathon or something like that, which actually traces the whole route. And people do run it. It's actually physically possible. Uh, certainly not for me. But here's the thing. Why would Phaedipides be willing to go through all of this to suffer and to die? Why? Well, it's because the message of victory that he was entrusted with was worth more than anything in his life. 
It was worth running for, it was worth suffering for, it was worth dying for. And back in verse 1 in our chapter, Paul tells us why being a Christian is worth it. He says, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Throughout all of the New Testament, throughout all of Paul's writings, whenever he talks about a mystery, and particularly one that has been revealed, it always, every single time, relates to the message of the gospel. That is, it's a a message about who Jesus is and what he has done for his people. And the gospel, it's a message that that is so countercultural, so flipped around, it's so unusual and perhaps even foolish by the standards of our world that unless God supernaturally revealed it to us, we would never know, we would never guess, we could never imagine or accept it. And it also means that if you are someone here who does believe Jesus, who says, I am a Christian, I believe the gospel, then you are a walking, talking testament to God's supernatural intervention in your life. You might not feel like it, but God's spirit has done something remarkable in you. Being a Christian is is about saying, I'm putting my whole trust in a God who willingly came down and walked the earth in all of its mess, who willingly suffered on my behalf and died the death that I deserve for my involvement with evil and rose again so that I could finally be free of evil's grip on my life. And God did that simply because he loved me. And it was the only way to restore the broken relationship that I had with him. To say that I'm a Christian, to say that you're a Christian, it's, it's to throw in your lot with that gospel story. I'm going to trust and rely on a Jesus who is who, did what he, who is who he is and who did what he did for me in all of its humility, weakness and suffering. And I'm aware that Some of us here are probably thinking, what a bunch of nonsense. But for some of you, maybe even for the first time, there's something in that that is attractive to you. Or at the very least, you're feeling curious about a God that would go to that length just for you. And if that's that's you, then, then ask God to reveal more of this mystery to you. Talk to me, talk to Megan, talk to Nick and Tamara, someone that you know who is a Christian. They would love to help. Like Faedipides, who recognised the immense value of what he was entrusted with, God's hope is that we too would see the immense value of the gospel that's been entrusted to us. And that we will be willing to do whatever it takes so that others may know that as well. I'm going to ask God to help us in that task. Please pray with me if you feel comfortable. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you with all sorts of expectations about what it means to be a Christian. 
And I pray that your spirit would empower us to live your way. Please, Lord, remind us of the immense value of the gospel that has been entrusted to us. Lord, may we be a church that is willing to suffer for the gospel. May we follow Christ's example and be willing to look like morons for the sake of the gospel. And Lord, we ask that in the gospel we would stand as a united family in Christ that serves one another in love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.